Okay, inspired listeners, it's Valentine's week. I'm going to go out on a limb here, in the name of love. When first planning our February episode, I found myself exhausted, barely able to keep my eyes open. And so I did what some creatives do to spark ideas. I took a 20-minute power nap, and I had the most surreal dream. There was a stadium, similar to Ohio Stadium, but much bigger. It was packed full of beings. Maybe people, maybe something else, waving banners and flags, and they were doing something like the wave, but cooler. They were popping through a kind of space-time continuum, little portals that allowed them to jet through time and back into the stadium. And they were deliriously cheering. A companion stood at my side, serving as my guide, and I asked him, what are they doing? What's the point of all this? What it all means, he replied, and what they are basically trying to say is, we love you. They know me, I asked? Yes, he said. They cheer for you, they're pulling for you, they cry with you, they are wild about you. And it's not just you. Everyone has the same kind of supreme fan club. Every single person. There you have it, straight from my dreams to your ears. Schmaltzy, you say? Maybe, but that dream got me thinking about a maxim. Can love really change the world? Not the Cupid and Candy Hearts kind of love, but kindness, belongingness, acceptance. What do scholars and researchers at The Ohio State University have to say about the impact of those kinds of love? As it turns out, a lot. And so we give to you the love episode. This is the Ohio State University Inspire podcast. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grosso is our audio engineer. Megan Beery is our student intern. Inspire is a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. February 17th is Random Acts of Kindness Day. As we at Inspire record this, Ractivists are planning to call their moms. Hi, Mom. It's Random Acts of Kindness Day, so I wanted to, like, call you and say I appreciate you. They're writing notes of appreciation, contemplating how to spread goodwill both on Ohio State's campuses and around the globe. But can that make a difference in a world of political division, gun violence, opioid addiction, and racial inequity? I asked Colette Dollarhide, Program Chair of the Counselor Education Program at Ohio State's College of Education and Human Ecology. There's just a lot to be downcast about right now. How much can kindness and caring and a sense of belonging, how much can that really help? It can help a tremendous amount. Knowing that we are social animals, we evolved because of our ability to communicate and relate and help each other. It's in our DNA. It's in our deepest levels. We need relationships. We thrive in relationships. And without them, we do not thrive. And in fact, animal studies have made it clear that animals that are not given parental attention and nurturing uh, will simply die. 
the studies in isolation have indicated that that is a device of torture. Hmm. That kind of extreme deprivation for severing all relationships and connections can seriously cripple an individual in physical and emotional ways. Wow. I teach theories. There are a whole body of theorists, Carl Rogers, Viktor Frankl, Alfred Adler, who refer to the importance of that social connection. Abraham Maslow wrote about peak experiences and those peak experiences being those moments where we know why we're alive. Those almost never happen in isolation. They more often happen in connection with other human beings. That's how powerful reaching out and making that connection can be. Some researchers, in fact, say loving connection is as essential to well-being as a healthy diet. Without it, mental health and then physical health begin to decline. Studies have shown that close friendships in middle school, for example, can predict whether kids will have self-worth or experience anxiety and depression as young adults. It's one reason focusing on children's belonging is so crucial. If you know or teach children, or you were that kid hanging out on the fringes of the classroom, and there were a lot of us, you'll want to listen to what Associate Professor Karen Beard has to say about belongingness. She researches educational administration and educational policy and teaches positive psychology to school administrators. The research backs this up, right? That social belonging is critical to to the outcome for not just children, but but for people in general. Absolutely, it does. Not only does it back it up, it's quantifiable. Yes, in fact. One of the common denominators we're looking at and finding in children, especially children and adolescents who are isolating, and what causes adolescents to do these things that we are seeing in the news, one of the common denominators is that they have not felt that sense of belonging, that they have been bullied. I've heard that over and over again. And so when they feel isolated in a context that they have to perform in every single day, the frustration that comes from that, we see played out. And so one of the things that we have to think about when talking about social belonging is that it's a preventative measure. And because I work on it with schools, it's also a protective measure that we have to address. We absolutely know it, and it is indeed quantifiable. One root of the problem for kids, an immature prefrontal cortex, where thoughts and actions are orchestrated in the brain. They can limit kids' abilities to name their emotions and understand them, or put them into context. You have one more question to do. No, yes, you do. Don't you yell at me. Sit down at your seat, please, so we can work on it. No, you have one more to do. You have one more to do. You are not done, and I'm trying to help you, so come sit down. What we now call social-emotional learning, which adolescents and children don't always have the ability to do or the skill set, it can be developed. We do have growth mindsets, so it can be developed. That's the blessing in all of this. And those thoughts and actions have to be in accordance with internal values and goals. So teaching those values, teaching the values like kindness, teaching social belonging, teaching emotional learning and how to interact with one another, those civil skills early 
is very, very important to eliminate some of the isolation and the frustration that we see in the adolescent immature precortex that causes them to react and respond out of emotions they don't even fully understand. The preventative measure. I ask Colette Dollarhide how school counselors work to help isolated children integrate. Dollarhide and the college have for years taught counselors techniques that science now substantiates. This is where it can go wrong, right? If Correct. kids are not getting that the love that they need in order to right. learn to have empathy for others, right? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's possible to change outcomes just through kindness? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do 100%. Mm-hmm. One of the activities that I teach our school counselors to do is called social mapping. And so they go into a classroom and they ask the children to name three kids that you like or that you talk to frequently. And then they gather all that information and then they can find out who's isolated in that classroom and then work with the teacher in order to design activities that bring that kiddo into the classroom community. Maybe the child hands out papers or class materials, or maybe she helps a classmate who is on crutches. Then the counselor can also target that kiddo to help with teaching social skills. What does it mean to be a friend? How do you reach out and communicate? Because we do have some kiddos who don't have a real good sense of how do I make a friend? I don't know Mm -hmm. how to do that. Those are skills that can be taught. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that the counselor teaches is how to help. The kiddo who's isolated is often given opportunities to help other kids Mm. in a way that gives them the good feelings and connection and starts to integrate that child into that classroom community. So there's a direct example, yeah, of how kindness and acts of connection can go both ways. And as activists will tell you, this works for college students and adults, too. Jennifer Chevins is an Ohio State professor of psychology who co-authored a study with her former doctoral advisee, David Craig. The research really suggests that social connection and belongingness and being connected to people that you care about is one of the most important things that we can measure in terms of how people feel in terms of their psychological health and their psychological well-being, that that really matters a lot for people. Mm -hmm. So people who are more socially connected tend to be a little happier, more fulfilled, that kind of thing? That kind of thing. So they t- people who are most, more socially connected tend to be happier. They tend to have more meaning in their life. They tend to experience feeling like they're living at kind of their optimal selves. I was actually thinking from the other perspective, how people need kindness in order to feel like they belong and feel like they are accepted. But the research that you did with David Craig looks more at the people who do acts of kindness. Why did you decide to concentrate on them? Well, one of the things that we were focused on in this study was trying to figure out, are there pieces that are important to people's lives that might be missing in some of the therapies that we do for depression and anxiety? So David was my PhD student, and this was his dissertation, and he was really interested in social connection as an outcome. Mm. And some of the research to date suggests that although cognitive behavioral therapies 
are quite good at reducing people's symptoms of depression and anxiety, they might be missing this outcome of social connection. So you might have a really successful course of cognitive behavioral therapy, come out of this feeling less depressed and less anxious, but not necessarily more connected to other people. Mm. And so we wanted to test if you had people engage in acts of kindness, acts of kindness that were somewhat costly to them, done for other people, if that would impact their symptoms of depression and anxiety, but even more importantly, if that would impact their experience of social connection. Mm. When you say somewhat costly, what does that mean? We assigned people to either acts of kindness or thinking about things differently with a tool that we use in cognitive therapy or engaging in pleasant events with other people. So we really wanted the acts of kindness to be separable from the pleasant activities, from engaging with other people in a way that makes you happy. So the focus of the acts of kindness group was to do something for someone else that uh, was for them and cost you something that could be any kind of resource though, your time, it could be money, mostly time and money are the main resources that people engage in. Study participants, all of whom had elevated symptoms of anxiety and depression, baked cookies, held open doors, complimented people they knew, or who were complete strangers. People shoveled the sidewalk for a neighbor, uh, called their grandparents, bought coffee for someone at Starbucks who was in line behind them. Mm-hmm. I had that happen once. It was yeah. great. <laughs> really nice. It wasn't you, was it? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. <laughs> oh. So um, what were your findings of the study? Well, the good news is what we found first was that all three of the conditions, so acts of kindness, thinking about things differently, and pleasant events, all resulted in lowering people's symptoms of depression and anxiety over the course of those uh, five weeks. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, the acts of kindness group did a little bit better than the thinking about things differently group. Mm in terms of reducing um, symptoms of depression, anxiety, and increasing life satisfaction. But the main finding and what we were really interested in is that the acts of kindness group did better than both the other groups in terms of increasing social connection Mm. and the reductions in depression and anxiety for those in the acts of kindness group came via or indirectly through increases in social connection. People with anxiety and depression, they tend to be the ones who are cutting themselves off from other people. Um, You found that by reestablishing those connections, it put them on the road to well-being. We did. You know, one of the things that happens, I think, when people are experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety is that it can result in anhedonia for folks who are experiencing symptoms of depression, which means things that were pleasurable to you before aren't very pleasurable anymore. And when people are feeling anxious, social anxiety is a really common form of anxiety. So both of those experiences can result in people limiting who they're spending time with and isolating a little bit more than they might normally do. So we found that, yeah, engaging in acts of kindness, like thinking about other people really moves people towards feeling better and feeling more socially connected. Other studies indicate that showing kindness can decrease blood pressure and cortisol, a hormone that impacts stress levels. Think about it. Volunteering at a dog shelter or helping someone pick up their spilled groceries can boost serotonin and dopamine, chemical messengers in the brain that help create feelings of satisfaction and well-being. 
and when you smile at someone, it's neurologically contagious. Mirror neurons that control smiling in their brains light up. And more often than not, they smile back. We are hardwired to be social beings. Colette Dollarhide. The good feelings that come along with those significant connections with other people, it feeds us. It nurtures our understanding of the human condition, our empathy, our ability to be compassionate. So the more that we spend time in these nurturing relationships, the more it fills our capacity for love and empathy. What about having compassion for a complete stranger? We all run into people who are homeless. We all might see an accident happening on the freeway. What about some of us makes us jump into action and other people kind of hold back? I think that we calculate in that moment whether or not we have the situational efficacy to be helpful. So I personally faint at the sight of blood. You know, my husband over the years has done that with three different accidents where he pulled people out of a, two of them was a burning car. One was where a car was crushed and, but he was able to get the person out and, wow. and that resulted in saving their lives. Wow. Even though he's not a medical professional, he just jumps into action and just does it. And I just sit there in awe. So whether that's kind of an emergent kind of situation or experience where someone says, I'm going to step forward and help here, or whether it's a thoughtful, I'm going to mentor someone, or I'm going to read to the elderly, or those kinds of things, as long as they're doing something to establish and maintain their humanity, I think that that can feed their soul. How do we bring our own kids up to be that person who facilitates kindness. We definitely want to be teaching those things directly, directly sending those messages to our families, to our kids about human compassion and thoughtfulness. And it's through modeling. So kids learn what they hear in the car, around the TV, around the dinner table. We want to also be good role models for kindness and compassion and empathy so that kids hear those messages throughout their lives and hear that it's our job to take care of each other. It's our privilege. It's our honor to be able to serve our community in meaningful ways, whether that's our school classroom community, it's our neighborhood community, or it's our family community. Because so many of these behaviors are established in early years, let's again consider schools. If you look, even there you can find glimmers of hope. A high school football coach talks a teen into giving up his gun and then hugs him as police stand down. I didn't want to hurt anybody, I didn't want to hurt anybody. That's what he said to me. I just wanted to hurt myself. He goes on to say, nobody cares about me. And uh, I told him I care about him. I think he needed a hug more than he needed to be tackled to the ground. A bullied kid in London, Ontario, decides to turn the narrative around by holding doors open at his high school, and later is crowned prom king. The first few weeks when I started doing it, they were kind of shocked. Good, you? Thank you. Not many people hold doors, right? 
But after that, people started to open up to me. He had literally, just by holding doors and saying good morning, he had turned, like, he'd made a drastic change in his life. As a positive psychologist, Karen Beard works to study why things go right in schools, when they go right. Like when a school with underprivileged students has a spike in academic scores. A study of what is happening or interrogating conditions or situations or organizations when things are going well. That's what I study. I value more and more not only the way I make sense of the world, but the way I can support that by evidence. And that came from many of the lessons learned as a child. So the things that we are teaching our children are impactful lifelong. And if we're taking a conscious effort to teach kindness, that will impact their understanding and their sense-making throughout their entire life. I think about this a lot. I think about children a lot. So learning actually comes from teaching. And a teacher can't teach what they don't know or are unwilling to learn. So that's a two-way street. Not only are they teaching the kindness, but they have to have inherently within them the ability to understand and be kind and communicate that kindness. How imperative is it that children receive this? And what happens when they don't? This is kind of the driving point, I think, of the entire podcast. Mm -hmm. When we don't carefully attend to our children's understanding of kindness or humanity Mm -hmm. and their productive or possible productive role in that, if we don't attend to it, then they begin to feel the unbelonging. And that's the imperative part of why they have to receive this. The frustration that develops from not belonging or from a lack of love or a lack of acceptance, I think that's the frustration that we're seeing on the news (laughs) nightly. Um, That frustration comes with not being able, again, to take chances to grow, Mm -hmm. to learn. When you can't trust your community to accept you, whatever your community looks like, then it stifles you. And, And the human spirit was not designed to be stifled. So when that spirit is stifled, it leads to the things that we're trying to protect away from, depression, anxiety, anger. And even more difficult is left alone in their hurt. It builds a desire to hurt somebody else because no one likes to be alone in their hurt. And when they're hurting, the tendency is to want to see somebody else hurt. Hmm. We have to impress upon our children more love, more attention, more care, more humanity, a better understanding of kindness and how that pays off higher dividends than the selfishness that capitalism drives or the selfishness of getting the bigger piece of pie. Those things have to be counterbalanced. And that's how we have to, in my mind, that's why it's imperative for children to receive and understand why kindness is important, what their role is in humanity, and how they understand humanity and society so that they can feel like they belong, and not only that they belong, but that they can contribute. Mm-hmm. So let's take the flip side of that. Okay. What happens when a child does receive all that belonging and all that care and love and support. I started my career as a classroom teacher, and I have to be candid with you. When I had 25 students in a room, it felt 
really big to meet each student's needs. But I will say that if I showed care and concern for any one of those children on any given day, they felt it. They knew it. When you have a friend going through a hard time and you pick up the phone or you walk over to their house or you make yourself available for a hug, that kind of kindness, that kind of care breeds hope. There's a thirst to want to not only give it back to you, but give it back to somebody else. There's a desire to to share that, not only that feeling, but also that higher sense of self and connectivity. We're social creatures. We love to connect. Even the most, and, and this is funny because a lot of scholars always say, I'm really an introvert. And it's true. We are, we are very introverted and, no and it's not, <laughs> oh, huge, huge introverts. But even an introvert can appreciate the thirst and the desire to be socially accepted and to be among friends who get them, who understand them, even in their quiet ways, but also not just in that belonging sense, but then it feeds that hunger to be that for somebody else. In some regards, as adults, we're not too far removed from our middle school selves. It's like when filmmaker Jonah Hill pulls out a cardboard cutout of himself when he was 13 and overweight and shows it to his therapist in the documentary Stutz. The work is like inching towards not only accepting, but like bringing this per that th it's great to be this person. Yes. But that's still very hard. He's looking for self-acceptance, but still very much needs belonging too. And maybe that's why we relate to the kids. We crave love and belonging at 13, but also at 35 and at 80. And we all remember when we didn't get it. When somebody doesn't accept you or makes you feel like you don't belong, particularly because of a characteristic over which you have no control, such as race, gender, size, age, that says more about them and their social immaturity than it does about you. And I think a lot of us, as we're building our identity, we internalize and take in a lot of those external cues um, of others, but that immaturity belongs to them and we should not take ownership of that. That takes some of us longer to really fully understand and appreciate because context, especially when you're young or you're building your identity or your understanding of yourself is important. And especially as how we live out our lives in the United States, where sexism and ageism and racism and casting continues to persist. As adults, though, we can strive for more. We can take love to the next level. Even how we meet or respond to others or their unkindness of others, it's hard. And we don't always get it right. But in response, the socially mature are called to do no harm. It may not initially feel good, but because it's the higher ground, it feels good to be right. And to offer grace in the face of someone else's pain, that is also an act of kindness. Their negative response to you is coming out of pain. Yeah. Like I said before, hurt people don't like to be alone in their own hurt, and so they tend to hurt others. That's coming from a place of pain. And, and it really is hard sometimes because 
when somebody hurts you, the natural response is to want to hurt them back. But the mature response, the ethical response is to offer grace. The kind response is to offer grace. And that's what I'm saying. It's not always easy. I thought you were talking more about protecting yourself, but you're really talking about extending grace to someone who others might find it very, very hard to extend grace to. That's exactly right. It's really important, the self-talk that's going on in a person in that moment, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's why I use the words maturity and immaturity. The social emotional learning aspect of this is very important. And and if you haven't done a lot of self-work, and I'm not just talking about children and adolescents now, but if you haven't done a lot of self-work, your responses may be very immature. And you could be adding to more of the complexity and, and challenges and problems that we have in incivility rather than where we can go with civility and kindness and care as individuals operating in the world. And that's kind of where, Mm -hmm. in response to what you said, what can we do individually? You know, do the self-work and extend care. As you're talking about all this, I'm thinking about some of the vitriol and and some of the, just the horrific things that are said on social media. Right, exactly. In those those digital contexts. I think it's so easy to try to fire back. Yeah, because that's our ego wanting us to be, have the last word, the last say, or being the bigger voice. And that's something we have to keep in check. When all we're thinking about is ourself and how we look to the world, then you're absent the ability to show kindness to somebody Mm -hmm. else in that moment. So keeping your ego in check is really important. And you're right, online, Mm -hmm. a lot of those platforms almost feed into that. We see it all the time. You see the vitriol, the terrible comments that no one would make if their mother was in the room. But because they're online, they think they can say whatever and do whatever they want. Yeah, they think it's okay. Yeah. But they're damaging. Those things are very damaging. They're severely psychologically damaging. I think everybody who gets on a social media platform should have a picture of their mother pop up. She needs, idea. she needs to be in the room when you're popping off. Or your grandma, maybe. Yeah, your grandma, grandma might be better. Exactly. <laughs> would you say it in front of grandma? Yeah, would you say that really <laughs> in front of your grandma? So here's your assignment. Put a photo of your granny or your mom on your desktop. Show a little love. Help out a kid who's feeling insecure or unaccepted. Check on your neighbor. Give to someone what you're craving. A smile, a helping hand, a kind word. Be a part of someone's supreme fan club so that they can become part of yours.